Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. We continue on in this glorious epistle of 1 Peter. We begin reading this morning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it with Is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I've had several jobs in my life. In fact, most of my life, I've had a job and I've been employed in one way or the other. And I mean that quite literally. When I was seven years old, I started my first job delivering newspapers for the Grand Rapids Press in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I wasn't technically old enough to have a paper route on my own, but my older brother was, and so we jointly shared a paper route. And I say jointly shared lightly because it was more, in my opinion, indentured servitude to my older brother. But he did pay me a little, and so I was gracious, grateful for that. But we delivered on a daily basis about a hundred newspapers throughout the surrounding neighborhood in which we lived. And I ended up doing that for nearly ten years I had several other jobs throughout high school and college and then throughout seminary. And so I figured uh, that before I entered my time as a pastor, I had almost 20 years of work experience. So I know a little bit about work, contrary to some of you who jokingly so say that pastors only work one day out of the week. At least I hope you're joking. But what I know about work goes back to that very first job of delivering newspaper. That employee-employer relationship. The value of a dollar. And that work is oftentimes difficult. And not altogether difficult enjoyable or easy. And those principles persist to this day. Most of our life will be given and expended on work. In fact, it is the predominant activity of your life. And therefore, we must have a thoroughly Christian worldview when it comes to our work and to our vocation. Work is that platform. The 
context in which we live our lives out. And so through our work, we are going to give either credence or contempt to that which we believe, to our Christianity. And I don't think that I'm overstating that when I say it in that way. Your work, not only how you do it, but your attitude towards it will be that why which you give a witness either for or perhaps even against Christ. And you might be saying this morning, well, Pastor, I, I would never be a witness against Christ. And perhaps that is true. Perhaps at least not intentionally. But that is exactly what is taking place. If we don't have these principles that Peter lays out for us in this passage. And so these things, as all of Scripture, is of the utmost importance. And they are true even if you're not formally, quote-unquote, employed. Because we are always employed. We are employed for Christ's service, no matter what we do. And so these are principles that must permeate the Christian life. Our work ethic must be Christ-like. And it must not be modeled after the world. And so we'll look at that this morning in two points. Work rendered, and then second, work endured. First, work rendered. And notice what Peter says here. Verse 18, servants Be subject to your masters with all respect. This command, and that's what it is, it is a command, comes as a subset of a larger command that Peter has already laid out for us, and that is in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so Peter is, in this section, making three Points, three commands, three ways that we must be subject to three human institutions. And those institutions are those of the civil government, of the social or vocational system, and then later the marital system or relationship. And in this section, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he begins to spell out what that looks like. As we saw last week, he says in verse 13, be subject to the emperor or to the king or to to the government. Today we see in verse 18, be subjects, servants, to your master. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, be subjects to your own husbands. And in chapter 5, he'll talk about be subject to the elders of the church. And so you see all these different spheres. You see the civil sphere. You see the social and vocational sphere. You see the marital sphere. And then the religious and ecclesiastical sphere. And you notice that the command is the same throughout that reoccurring theme of subjection. Or to be subject. That is not a very popular word these days, is it? 
The reality is, subjection has never been a popular word or a popular theme or concept. In fact, we can go all the way back to the very sin of our first parents. What was the temptation by the serpent? Did God really say you couldn't eat of that one particular tree? And we know the end results that our first parents took and ate. And that sin, being along with many things, was the sin of insubordination. Not being subject to God and to His commands. And so that sin is deeply rooted in the heart of mankind. We could say it's as old as time itself. And so naturally we despise subjection. We do not want to be subject to anything or anyone. Especially not God. And yet, if we are going to be Christ-like, one of the main moralities, one of the main duties of the Christian life is subjection, is submission. First and foremost, to the Lord. You cannot come to the Lord without submitting to Him, submitting to His Lordship. And that is, humanly speaking, at least in my opinion, what keeps most away from saving faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is bowing the knee to the Lordship of Christ. To relinquishing that autonomy. Now we all know that that autonomy is a pipe dream anyway. No one is truly autonomous. The only being that is autonomous is God Himself. Every other creature is a dependent being. But most people in this life think that they are on their own. That they are their own lords. They are even their own gods. And so therefore they do not submit to the true God. And that's why Peter earlier in this chapter says that Jesus is that stone of stumbling. That rock of offense. And so if you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope you have, then it is imperative that you be first and foremost subject to the Lord. And that in that subjection to the Lord, you are subject to those that God has put in authority. That's what these sections are truly about. Just as the... John, the Apostle, would say in 1 John, if you say you love the Lord but do not love your brother, you are a liar, John says. Well, I think the Apostles would also say if you say that you're submitted to the Lord but yet are not submitted to those above you, you also are a liar and even a hypocrite. Because notice how often What is said about subjection is linked to the Lord. Notice in verse 13 it says, Be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Verse 16, live as servants of God. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice this doesn't happen outside of the context of your relationship 
with the Lord. And that must be noted. In fact, as we will see next week, he goes on to say that the subjection and even perhaps suffering that we experience within that subjection is a model of the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering. It's what Luther will call the theology of the cross. He says, if you want glory, look to the cross. True glory is found through subjection and through submission, just like the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure it. And so this is no minor point. This is chiefly how we display what is said way back in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How do we keep our conduct around the the watching world? Well, he tells us in verse 13 to be subject. That through being subject, that is how you demonstrate honorable behavior in the light of a watching world. And so Peter this morning begins to specifically apply that to our work. And as I said before, your work is a clear demonstration of what you believe. And so let me pause and ask you and ask, do you see your work in that way? Because I think most wrongly have, hopefully not you, but most wrongly have within the church this sacred, secular distinction. That what I do on Sunday is very much different from what I do Monday through Friday in the workplace, that they really don't overlap. That's what I mean by that sacred, secular distinction. But if we were to have a thoroughly Christian worldview, we must destroy that sacred, secular distinction, especially in the way that we look at our work. That you must not see yourself as having a secular job. You do not have a secular job. Every job is a holy vocation unto The Lord, no matter what you do, all work, no matter its function, is a holy offering unto God. You do not have to be in, quote-unquote, full-time ministry to do your work unto the Lord. All of your work is to be a ministry. And the service that you render and the way that you do it with your behavior, with your attitude, with that which you produce, we must see it. As such. And this is where the reformers of old were, were so helpful. Reforming this way of work and this way of vocation. Martin Luther went as far as to say, God milks the cows through the hands of the milkmaid. In other words, that through our work... God is establishing his order and providing for the earth. You may not think of it that way, but you should. God is using you to establish that which he desires in this world. One author puts it this way. In the Lord's Prayer, we ask that God give to us our daily bread, which he does. He does not directly, as with the manna to the Israelites but does so through the work of farmers, truck drivers, bakers, retailers, and many more. In fact, he gives us our daily bread through the functioning of the whole accompanying economic system. 
employers and employees, banks and investors, the transportation infrastructure and technological means of production, each part which is interdependent and necessary if we're going to eat. Every part of this economic food chain is a vocation through which God works to distribute his gifts. Think of it for a moment. If everyone, and I mean everyone, stopped doing their job for just a day or even an hour, our way of life would cease to exist. We would have chaos of epic proportions. There would be pandemonium. It's through our work that God is establishing his system, in a sense, on the world. His governance, his care, his protection, his provision. And you play a part in that. And so employment is a blessing of the Lord. And so how are we to work? Well, that goes back to that first command. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And you might be questioning, like many have, Peter's command to servants. Most servants during that day were slaves. And so let's answer that elephant in the room. Is is Peter here commending servanthood or even slavery? As some have used the scriptures to say that the Bible is is pro-slavery. No, the apostles by no means are commending but rather merely recognizing servants and slavery as the social norm during that time, the status quo, but the, it doesn't mean that that was a, a good system or even a preferable or a just one. It's not. Nor should we think that they are commending it in that way. But also we should see that Jesus, nor the apostles, ultimate objective was to revolutionize government or social order. It wasn't. They weren't revolutionaries, not at least of social systems or, or, of, or of the governments. That was not their, their main purpose. Rather, they sought to revolutionize the person. Inwardly, and then ultimately, outwardly, in how one would conduct themselves in their given culture and given context, even when that context is not what is best. And so we shouldn't think of this as a commendation towards slavery, any more than saying that by Peter saying, be subject to the emperor, that that was a commendation towards Roman imperialism. Or how Nero was governing. Or, as Peter will go on to say, wives, be subject to your husband, even if they're an unbelieving husband. That is not a commendation towards unbelief, is it? No, it is not. But servanthood and slavery were the norms during the first century. Either you were a servant and slave, 
or you were free. A master even. You're one or the other, and yet the commands of Christ were the same to both. There was not distinction. Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 7. Were you a slave when called? He says, do not be concerned about it. But goes on to say, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, your first concern is not your status. If you are a slave, then remain a slave. And be a godly and Christ-like slave in that role. But as he says, if given the opportunity, take it. Which demonstrates that he was not pro-slavery. Paul is essentially saying if, if freedom is given to you, take it. Freedom is clearly better. But your freedom from this social order is not that of first importance. Why? Because he goes on to say a slave is free in the Lord. And then he even says, if you're free, you're still a slave in Christ. Freedom in Christ and your conduct in Christ are more important than your status as either a slave or free. Some might ask, why doesn't he address masters here? And the Bible surely does. But even here, I don't think Peter is being silent towards those that would be masters I think it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is true of slaves, how much more of masters? As Jesus says, to much that is given, much is expected. And, and Paul will say in Ephesians 6, Masters, remember you have a master in heaven. And you are accountable to him. But overall we can say this. We can be thankful that here, In America, our economy is not built upon the master-servant relationship anymore. As slavery has been outlawed and banned, that is a development, that is an advancement in the right direction, and the apostles would surely commend that. That workers' rights are a good thing. However, our current system does not lessen this command. You can't just gloss over this section and say, well, we can cut that out because we don't have servants and masters anymore. Because if Peter was writing today, I think you would say, employees, be subject to your employers with all respect. Or he might say, workers, be subject to your bosses with all respect. Perhaps we can even take it one step further and personalize it. Perhaps you could insert your name where it says servant and insert your boss's name where it says master. Go ahead, take a moment, think about that. That's a little tougher to do, isn't it? That really brings it home, doesn't it? Because when we speak of kind of nameless people, we can go, well, I think I'm doing that. But when we put names into this verse, very specific names, we see what this is really implying. And as a result, a little harder to do the commands that we are commanded of here in this passage. We might say, oof, it's getting a little hot in here. Pastor is getting a little personal. 
Well, that's what it's saying, isn't it? And you might be quick to say, but, but you, don't, you don't understand. You, you, you don't know my boss. You don't have to work with him or her. Right? He or she is, is, is terrible. They, they are harsh. They are mean. They are overbearing. No one can get along with them. They make Pharaoh look like a good employer. They make the most harsh master look like as one that is gentle. But notice this. Notice what it says. Keep reading with me. It says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It's not just to the fair and just bosses or employees that we are to give subjection, but also to the unfair and to the unjust. That your subjection is not based upon your boss's behavior. You can't say, oh, well, you know, she, she or he is being, being really nice today. And therefore, I, I guess I'll be, I'll be nice. Or you might say, oh, man, they are in a mood today. Well, I'll show them. I'm just going to sulk and slack off. No, we're not given that option, are we? We're to do our work with all excellence and glory regardless of our bosses because ultimately we do it not unto them but unto the Lord. Listen to what Paul again says in Ephesians chapter 6, render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the hearts. In other words, our work should be the same. If your boss rides you, if they are overbearing, if they are on you like white on rice, as they say, or if they just completely leave you alone and you are essentially accountable to no one, they don't overlook your work, they let you do your own thing, it doesn't matter. We are ultimately here to please the Lord. And hopefully in pleasing the Lord, that will also please our employer. But at other times, it may put us at odds with them. Maybe as they ask us to do something that we, we cannot do, according to what the Scripture commands of us. You may even lose your job over it, doing your work unto the Lord. If so, so be it. But as a whole, employers should desire Christians to be a part of their company. They should be looking for them. But sadly, we have to say that is oftentimes not the case because there isn't much of a work difference between those that profess faith and those that do not. Most of the world looks skeptically oftentimes, I think. Perhaps as you do, as you see a business that that puts that Christian fish on their business card or on their advertisement or on their work vehicle. I think most of the world would say, well, number one, what's that? Number two, if they do know what that is, does that really encourage them to employ that person in service? I think not. 
And I think what this scripture would say is instead of advertising that you're a Christian, demonstrate it by your work and by your final product. That that is far greater. And this implies that students, you of those that are in school, the same command is given to you and to how you treat your teachers and how you go about your work and how you do your assignments is your first response to grumble and complain. Or think, how little effort can I get and put into this and still get a decent passing grade? Or do you say, this is an opportunity to show who I am, what I believe, demonstrate my work ethic even in school, my Christian faith and belief. School at this time is, is your job. And how you do it now will be how you do your vocation one day, your calling. There's others of you that might be saying, Whew, I'm glad this doesn't apply to me. I'm self-employed. Or some of you that are stay-at-home moms or, or retired. And I say, well, I'm, I'm not accountable to anyone. I can circumvent this. No, you're still accountable. And you can't circumvent this because you're just directly accountable to the Lord. You must continue to lay your work every day at his feet. And so this command is for all. Our work rendered is rendered unto the Lord. Well, second then, we have this aspect of work endured. We must remember that work was created by God. We're created by God to work. Adam was created to do a work, to do a job. He was to tend to the garden, which demonstrated that work was pre-fall, before sin. And so work in itself is not inherently evil. But after the fall, work has become tremendously harder. As Genesis 3 says, the, the ground is now cursed and therefore produces thorns and thistles in order to produce the food. And we're to work by the sweat of our brow. As a result, we deal with fallen people. We deal with fallen customers and fallen co-workers and fallen bosses. And indeed, we are fallen ourselves. And so work wears us down. It wears us out. But in a sense, it's meant to. Work is hard. And yet, we can be thankful that we have it much better than than most of the world. Most of how humanity has worked for numerous centuries has been much harder than us, I think we could say. Both through employee rights, through the modernization of the workplace, we, we work well. As I look around, I don't see many many ditch diggers. I don't see any slaves. I don't see any servants. And we can be thankful for that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still difficulties and struggles. Because there are. There's some jobs that I've had that I would used to, to dread. I'm sure you've had them. Maybe you currently have it. You drive to work and have that, that pit in your stomach. There are jobs that you would count down the hours I'm thankful that that is not my present reality. I've 
very grateful to be a pastor. It's my favorite job, if you can call it such, favorite calling. I think I'll keep it for a while, as long as y'all will have me. At the same time, there is no job that I think has been more emotionally and mentally and spiritually and as a result physically difficult than being a, a pastor. It takes a, a toll. And no doubt your job does as well. You may love your job or, or you may despise your current job. And the reality is it's probably somewhere in between, given the day. That's challenging. And yet the, the, the call is the same, that we're to endure, we're to persevere, even through the difficulty, even through the stress, even through the, the challenges, even through being perhaps treated unfairly and perhaps, yes, even unjustly. Because it's during those times of injustice, you have an opportunity to demonstrate that there is something different about you than any other worker in that workplace. Look at what Peter says there in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Notice that. He essentially says that God will give you grace to suffer unjustly. He'll say in verse 20, if you sin, there's no credit or merit in that. But if while doing good, you suffer, God will grant you grace. Grace to what? Well, I think grace to bear up under it to continue to do these commands and the rest of the commands of Christ and the Scripture. The strength to continue to do what is right, even in the face of injustice. And remember again who Peter is speaking to. He's speaking to those that are servants, many of which are slaves, many of which who have endured beatings, probably unfairly. In Roman law, a master could do with his slave whatever he pleased. Even to the point of death, a slave was seen as property. Obviously, you cannot do that before God, but in the laws of the state, eyes of the state, they were, it was lawful to beat your slave, to beat your servant. I don't think any of us have received a beating this week, have we? not literally at least, or threatened with the loss of, of life. And unlike those that Peter's writing to, we have the opportunity to, to move jobs. And some of you are perhaps thinking about that, contemplating about that at this time. If you have an opportunity to, to move to a different job that gives better hours, better pay, better work-life, church balance, to have a better boss perhaps, then you should do it. You're free to do it. As, as Paul says elsewhere, avail yourself of the opportunity. We have that. But if you can't, or perhaps even shouldn't, and you have to bear up under unfair treatment, a harsh or overbearing boss or employer, as Scripture would say, seize upon the opportunity. 
not for the flesh, which will be right there, but the opportunity to give a faithful representation of your God, to give glory to God. The scripture says, if you do, God will give you grace, will give you all that you stand in need of to do so. But let us remember that work will always be work. I'm sure all of you have heard that quote, I think attributed to Mark Twain, find a job you enjoy doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I don't want to say that's not true, but any job worth doing will be work. It will be hard. It will be difficult. And it should be, as I said. But I think the difference is that you can enjoy it, even in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the difficulty, because you're doing it for a greater and higher purpose. You can find enjoyment in that because you ultimately find enjoyment in your God who has called you to do such for his glory and for his praise. Let me finish with this. Pastor John MacArthur tells the story of one young Christian soldier who struggled being a soldier. Not because he didn't put in his best efforts. He did. But he was just physically limited. He wasn't strong. He was of a short stature. And after failing a particular test and laying on the ground in exhaustion, his commanding officer who had an eye for him but not a good eye, one that would berate him and yell at him, finally could not take it anymore. And as this soldier laid on the ground, he not only yelled at him but kicked him and stepped on him repeatedly, so much so that this young soldier had to be carried off the field. Next morning, the commanding officer woke up to freshly polished boots sitting next to his bed. And when asked who did this, the reply came, from the man upon whom you lost the shine of your boots yesterday, sir. This passage would say, in a world that kicks us, beats us, pushes us down, we are still to shine the boots of this world. To do a job that in many ways, in the eternal scheme of things, is trivial. Much of what we do will will not last, will it? It's kind of like polishing the brass on the sinking Titanic. But what will last is the manner in which we do it. The way we go about it. The glory that we're able to offer to God. The witness upon which we can give. And so may God grant us that grace that he promises in the scripture. This week to be Christian workers in the workplace. All for his glory and praise we ask. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the work that you've called us to, Lord. We confess it is difficult and we struggle. And at times our heart and our mind and even our behavior and action and words are not right. We confess that to you this morning. Lord, we pray that you give us new endurance, new perseverance to do that which you have called us to with glory and praise to you, O Lord. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that you give us opportunity to speak forth of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray this all in his name. Amen.